2: Football season is here, and it's time to dominate the competition with your fantasy picks. And R.J. Bell's Dream Preview on Podcast One Sportsnet is your secret weapon to victory. I
0: said the fact they didn't run it up in week one tells me this guy is so confident he wants to
2: hide his strength. No matter the matchup, R.J.'s got you handled with top-notch analysis for the best NFL picks around. Now, is that true or not? I don't know. Very optimistic. Download R.J. Bell's Dream Preview every week on Apple Podcasts. And podcast
1: One.com. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I am Daniel Rui, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. This is the final of the Division Capsule Podcasts, going through both the off-season review and season preview for this time, the Atlantic Division, a tumultuous division. So much stuff happened, a lot that we had to get through, with my stalwart guests for this one, Tim Bontemps of ESPN and Jared Weiss of The Athletic went through all five teams in various capacities, the moves that stood out to us, who got better, who got worse, rankings, breakout players, all that fun stuff. And episode is brought to you by betonline.ag. Use that familiar Podcast One promo code for a 50% sign up bonus, which is awesome. You can check out the hashtag Sportsnet Challenge. I will give you an update on that later on in the show. You can check that out. And this episode runs a little bit under an hour and a half. Lots to get to. And even after it sounds like it's going to end, it won't end because Tim brings up another topic, which was well worth pursuing. So we spend some time on that as well. So you can listen to the whole thing. Lots of great stuff in here. Thank you guys so much for coming on.
2: It's happy always a race here. to see who talks first every single year, it seems.
1: <laughs> yeah, happy to be here, man. A pretty eventful summer for the Atlantic Division, both in terms of departures and arrivals. Uh, we could start with, with Tim with this question. I've been thinking about it for the last couple of days. Some actually harder answers, I would say, here. Who do you think of these five teams got better, and who do you think got worse?
0: It's a, it is an interesting question. I think, obviously, the Nets got better. I think that's the one team in the division that you look at and go, um, they absolutely got better. Uh, I think Philadelphia, I think, arguably got better but still has the same question that it had coming into last season uh, in terms of who is going to be the guy who has the ball in their hands in the final few minutes of the game and is taking the biggest shots of the game. Uh, That's what the Sixers went and got Jimmy Butler to do. He did it very well in the playoffs and then they went and moved on from him in the summer. And like I said, I think did overall get better, but still have that key weakness. Uh, You know, the Knicks are what they are. The Raptors clearly got worse. And then, Boston is kind of in this weird middle ground where I do think that the Celtics got worse because they don't have Al Horford and they they currently don't have a verified, you know, legitimate option as a starting center in the league. Um, but they also have the chance to have a lot of guys who were on the team last year get a lot better. And they did replace Kyrie Irving with Kemba Walker, which is about as much of a life or like replacement as you can. So, yeah, I mean, across the division, it is kind of interesting to see how these teams evolved. It it probably was the team, the division that had the most uh, change in it. Even, you know, the Pacific division, I guess is up there too, with the way the Warriors, Clippers and Lakers change. But you just look at the amount of upheaval that, you know, the the top four teams in the division had. And, you know, it's going to be pretty interesting to see how all these various teams look uh, as we get into the season here in a few weeks.
2: I mean, the thing I'm most curious about is what is the fall for the Raptors, at least in the regular season, because you I'm assuming OG is going to come back and be healthy and be probably pretty good. And they're elevating Norm Powell to a much more significant role at this point, assuming that Van Vliet is still coming off the bench. And then if Siakam takes a big step forward, you know it's pretty plausible that this team could be in the high 40s, even low 50s for regular season wins. I would be surprised, but it's possible. So I don't think there's a... I mean, there are definitely, I think Tim, I agree with him as far as who got better and worse, but it doesn't seem like there's any team that's making a massive leap at this point.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. It's it's going to be interesting also, because there are some really strong teams at the top of this division, to see whether there's a disparity between the regular season and the playoffs. Something that I've been kind of consumed with since it all happened, which, you know, it took some time for all of us to process. I think a lot of it was was Summer League and Vegas and all that kind of stuff, was Philadelphia's overhaul, big questions about who's, as Tim said, who's going to have the ball in the final few minutes, and also, I mean, it looks like they're going to be absolutely nasty defensively, and and what I've been trying to process is that on that end of the floor, not necessarily on the other end of the floor, they seem so insanely well-situated to handling what the Bucks are trying to do offensively, with Al Horford, one of the best Giannis defenders in the entire NBA, and... Probably, I would say second best to Kawhi in last year's playoffs. Though Kawhi is now, of course, out of the Eastern Conference, and I so I, I, I try, I'm kind of to, trying to reconcile that with the offensive offensive potential. Foibles, just the structure of it, but then they also have a lot of talent and growth. And I mean, but with Philly, the, the underrated departure that I think could end up being really important in those May June games is JJ Redick. Reddick was imperfect, and there were times that he was an easy attack point offensive uh, on when they were on defense for opposing offenses, but Reddick gave them a kind of a, an offensive option a lot of the time, just he's running around doing stuff, keeping opponents busy, and he can break open for threes, and sometimes he gets something out of nothing, and I feel like this year's Sixers, at least in their current iteration, there will be times when their offense just bogs down, and it's hard to figure out how they will get unbogged.
0: Yeah, it's going to be an interesting thing to watch because at times J.J. would kind of be a crutch, I think, for Brett Brown last year and the Sixers in that you could always run a play for him and you'd always get a quality shot. And kind of by default, uh, they would do that a lot. Um, So I, I do think in some ways it will potentially be a good thing for them that they can kind of vary things up a little bit. Uh, but that Embiid-Reddick pick-and-roll, and, roll and that the, when those guys were on the court, it was such a um, it was such a weapon for them and such an effective one that I can understand why they would lean on it. And uh, it is, it is. look, I mean, you just look at the way their summer went. They gave $100 million to Tobias Harris, and they gave, I think, $180 million to Ben Simmons. You would know better than me, Danny, off the top of your head, exactly what his extension is, but it's something close to that for Ben. And uh, it just, they made a bet, you know, Elton Brand told me in July, they made a bet on those two guys to take steps forward, right? And I think you can kind of boil down what's going to go on in Philly, I think, fairly simply to, A, is everyone going to be healthy? Because I think to your point, and you and Nate have touched on this on, on the dunk on pod a lot, I think their defense is going to be absolutely incredible uh, if they are, all their guys are healthy. If Tobias Harris is your fifth best defender at his size, like, it's, you're in pretty good shape. Um, and at the other end, can Tobias and Ben step up in the playoffs in a way that they did not last year. Um, I think you tell me the answers to those two questions. Do those two guys get better offensively and do, and are their main guys healthy uh, when the rubber hits the road in the playoffs? And I can probably tell you whether the Sixers are going to be in the finals or not.
2: I mean, I I just see whether or not they make the finals being like you're saying, just like is Ben Simmons in the playoffs going to be able to do more than at least in the half court than basically, try to run into a space, a jump, and then either shoot the ball or pass the ball and then run away. You know, the, He has to have more ground control and more dynamicism to his game. I think the one thing that's good for them is that Horford, while he didn't shoot the ball that well last year compared to previous years, he's always been a pretty effective floor spacer and has that gravity. So while the way that he spreads the floor is obviously a lot different than J.J., he at least maintains some of that spacing for them. I mean, if Joel is shooting in the low 30s from three, then they're probably just they're never going to quite have the spacing that they're they're hoping for because uh, teams aren't going to run them off the line too hard. But so uh, Richardson is a good fit next to all that. But it's really just a matter of like Ken Simmons basically be a part of the continuity of the offense or is it that he tries to run a play it either works or it doesn't work and then the other four guys have to figure it out from there and he's just kind of hiding behind the basket somewhere trying to figure out what to do they must have some sort of contingency plan for when the first option on the play doesn't work in the playoffs this year
1: yeah and Brett Brown, I, I thought I saw something that he's, they're thinking about having Simmons when he's off-ball, standing, standing a little further away, not in the dunker spot. The problem there is if teams don't defend you, it doesn't really matter where you're standing necessarily because the defender is going to be in largely the same place. And something that concerns me about the Sixers this year, and it's also hard considering their lack of payroll flexibility for this to change – is they don't have a lot of ways to kind of shift personnel or options if this base five doesn't work. I, I expect it to. I think it's going to be very good, especially defensively. They're going to be nasty. But I really appreciate it, and it's often too much to ask, for a team to maybe it's like a shooter. You know, This is the downside of trading Landry, Landry Shamit in the Tobias Harris trade is just another way to to construct it. And you're going to take a step back on one side probably and take a step forward on the other. But the idea that your, the first idea might not be your best idea is an extremely important one for me. When the team has championship aspirations, if you're a weaker team, so be it. Then, then sometimes you're going to get into those circumstances. But if the Sixers are trying to be a championship contender, finals contender, wherever in that kind of line, I think that you need to have those looks not only because things happen, but also because different opponents have different strengths and will kind of force you into alternate lineups.
2: I mean, what's good is, hey, at least they have two good backup centers this year, so they finally have a break for Joel, so it's not like they have to completely freak out to try to figure out how to even stay with size uh, when Joel's not on the floor. And then, I guess the question is, is Richardson going to be able to function as a primary ball handler? Because they've that's been floated out there a few times. We assume that Sire Smith is not going to be filling that role, and I don't really know what Ronald Neto has left to give at this point. But so, you know, they they do have enough flexibility to get by, especially when rotations tighten up during the playoffs. But I guess it'll it'll really rear its head if there's injuries in the regular season because they're obviously their their starting lineup is. Probably the best in the league or just about. So they they are definitely top-heavy. But I think they do have more depth, at least at each each position, than they have had in the past.
0: All you have to do is go back to Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Semifinals in Toronto. And the Sixers lost to the Raptors because in the three minutes, Joel Embiid didn't play. They got outscored by 12 points. And now they have Al Horford, who is maybe the most versatile center in the league playing next to him, even though he's primarily going to play power forward when Joel's on the court. So, if in the playoffs you can have 48 minutes of Joel Embiid and Al Horford at center, all of a sudden the biggest weakness that the uh, that the Sixers had last year it has become strength, and it's not you know not only not a weakness but it has gone the other way. So, um, I think you're right, Danny, and I also think when you are just looking at the way the East shakes out, and you made this point when you were introducing the Sixers, the fact that you're looking at them now as a team with. Everybody basically thinking that the most likely outcome is that they're going to play Milwaukee in the conference finals. And now a year ago, people thought that the Sixers and the Celtics were going to be in the conference finals, and neither team made it. So I think we can use that at least as one caveat that that might not be the way it plays out. However, just looking at things now, if things do shake out that way, Philadelphia legitimately has four guys in Embiid, Horford, Simmons, and even Tobias Harris, who isn't going to do great on Giannis. But at least as a six-nine big guy with long arms, who can at least get in his way a little bit they have as many guys you could throw at Giannis in a game uh as you as you possibly could basically um so i think in terms of just matching up with their biggest competitor i think philly has to go into the into the season feeling pretty good about the fact that if things do shake out as we expect and they do match up with Milwaukee down the road they do have about as good of a chance of slowing down Giannis as much as possible as anybody in the league
1: yeah it's it's really fascinating to kind of game it forward and all of the sixers' games to me will be must-see TV. I'm guessing I'll do a few of them for the NBA cast as well because you, you don't want to read too much into any individual game, but they're both such unusual teams with extreme strengths and unusual playing styles that you want to see it, and, and that's it's not great data, but at least it's some data, and I'm excited about that. I want to transition briefly to the Knicks. I, I, I think I kind of agree with the way that Tim phrased it, but I'll clarify it a little bit, which is I think the Knicks are meaningfully better. I just don't know if that matters. Because they added a lot of talent, but that talent doesn't fit particularly well together. They're still well out of the playoff picture. I still think they're probably one of the weakest teams in the league unless a lot of this stuff works out. So that's kind of a hard, it's kind of a hard thing to square where they are better. I mean, mostly because the players they lost, especially with the way the better ones were used. I mean, DeAndre, yes, he was on the team, wasn't a heavy piece. You know, like in Vonley, I like Vonley, but he wasn't you know, going in there. But then you add in just a lot of guys who can at least put the ball in the bucket – The challenge for the Knicks is that I think they are the clearest at this point in the season, and there will be others, of course. They're probably the clearest, whole is less than the sum of their parts teams in the entire league, just because of how Perry and the front office put them together.
0: Yeah, weirdly, they have a team that you could argue has 15 NBA players on it, in terms of like legitimate rotation players, which, to your point, is generally a good thing to have. But when several of them play the same position and you don't have the star-level players, Uh, To kind of you know buoy that, Um, and this is a team that's going to be wanting to get minutes for guys like Mitchell Robinson and Kevin Knox and RJ Barrett uh, and Frank Ntilikina, maybe Dennis Smith Jr. Um, You know, in theory, they're going to want to play a lot of those younger guys. So even though they have that depth, uh, it's probably not going to translate into wins. Uh, And also, like, look, they play the Atlantic Division 16 times, right? So just off the off the top. They're probably going 4-12 and 12 or worse in the division, right, just looking at it. They're not nearly as good as these other teams, even with the losses that Toronto and Boston had. They're still you know, good teams. The Nets are still going to be a solid team, even without KD. Obviously, Philly's going to be really good. So if right off the bat you're looking at 20% of your schedule, you're going to win 25% of your games or less probably, It doesn't exactly bode well for being a competitive team the rest of the time.
2: Yeah, you could probably pencil in about 14 (laughs) losses or so just against the division. And the thing is, just looking at the projected depth chart, this is a good playoff bench here. It's a good playoff rotation. It's just that the guys are supposed to lead the way are all way too young. And, I mean, if Kevin Knox just takes an even decent leap off of his rookie year, then that could change whether they're a team that's trying to crack 30 wins versus 40 wins. But I would be shocked by that, obviously. Uh, But there's just... All the, t- all the talent at the top is just so raw at this point, and you just have no idea what to expect out of them. But hey, maybe Julius Randle, as the go-to guy in this offense, is going to put up huge numbers, and they have enough offensive firepower to somehow actually make a run of that eighth seed. I wouldn't put it out of the realm of possibility, but it's a very large realm.
0: I would put it out of the realm of possibility.
1: I would too.
2: It, it's a large realm.
1: And what other just characteristic that I can't shake with this Knicks team is that there is there's a significant selection of guys that they have who I would like in actually a similar kind of place on the totem pole on a different team, but it's just that they don't have the right surrounding talent. What I mean by that is for I, I still think that there's a productive player in Julius Randall. I mean, he's he's had some really nice years and everything else. But if they're starting him next to Mitchell Robinson, that's a problem because both those guys don't particularly space the floor. They don't necessarily complement each other defensively, particularly well, though I think Robinson's going to make some major strides on that end of the floor. Marcus Morris has been successful recently with the Celtics. Taj is a nice backup big. Wayne Ellington, I, I just don't know exactly what happened last year. I like him a lot. And then Frank, I've been a fan, a fan of him in a modest role for a while, for a while now since he was a, just you know a prospect. And Bullock's hurt, so we don't need to talk about him as much. So, But all those guys put together, it's just going to be super weird. And I've been trying to process – this can kind of transition into the moves that stuck out to you. I was critical a year ago of the Knicks signing of Mario Hazonia because the idea was they didn't recoup any value. They paid a bunch of money to him, but they didn't add anything for the second year like a non-guarantee or – a team option, or, or just just basically a way that if he if it does well, you can you can roll with it. They just paid him a lot of money, and then he left, and then he you know took the contract with the Blazers. No, must, no fuss. he didn't really move the needle much in New York, other than the Giannis plays. And this year, what they did is they gave a bunch of guys other than Randall. A lot of money for for the coming season, and then a lot of them a very light partial guarantee for next year, which theoretically you could see as a, you know, as movable pieces once we get into January or December, because those guys are all December 15th guys. But the problem is, in order for those guys to really provide value, the Knicks need to do one of two things. One, they need to be willing to take on 20-slash-21 salary, probably don't want to move into 21 because they think that maybe they still think they're going to get Giannis, good luck with that. But also... It's a question of whether giving those guys, you know, like Wayne Ellington, has a partial guarantee, but his full salary next year is eight million. Does a team see that contract as a value? Because if they do, other than as a way to offload multi-year salary, it's just it's another way that they might not have cultivated too much value long-term. That it might just be that they took a slight bump this year in exchange for basically nothing.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, I, I wrote a big piece back in July uh, laying out why the Knicks, you know, kind of the case for and against what the Knicks did. Um, the, the case on the four side is that, look, like you kind of laid out before, Danny, right? They do have a lot of solid NBA players now, and that will allow them to have their younger players, to have some veterans to be around, to kind of learn the, learn the game from a little bit. And it also will put them in a position where, I think in January and February, they are a team that could turn around and make some trades and get back some assets, right? Because whether it's Marcus Morris, uh, whether it's Wayne Ellington, um, maybe even Julius Randall, that his number's a little bit bigger. You, you kind of go down the list. They do have some guys that I could see teams being interested in getting. And I think we saw the way this summer went and the way the league looks right now. I think all three of us would agree. The league is going to be pretty wide open at the top. And, I think there is an opening there for the Knicks to take advantage of that and recoup some assets. Um, on the other side of the ledger, the Knicks really were adamant that they didn't want to take on contracts of guys that didn't want to be there, like Andre Godal, for example, right? They didn't want to take on contracts with an asset and use their cap space that way. They wanted players that wanted to be in New York. Um, I would have. I understand that sentiment to a degree. They're trying to build a culture there. I get that. The garden's been a cesspool for a long time. I get wanting to try to establish something where you want people to be there that want to be there. But I still think there was a middle ground there where they could have made a trade like that, you know, whether they got in on Mo Harkless or some of these other things. Maybe they get in on the Jimmy Butler trade, um, you know, different things like that. Maybe they could have gone in that direction in some form and got an A guy and a pick and still went out and got a few of these other guys. So, I think we'll have a better sense of where they're at with this in March. If we're looking at the Knicks in March and this team is ninety eight percent the same and they don't trade anybody away and they're on their way to winning twenty seven games, right? I'll have a lot more I'll I'll have more of an issue with it than I do now, um, when they go into the season with at least the potential because of the deals they signed, to your point, to have some tradable option or tradable assets that they can go out and get an get a piece or two and get a pick or two for in january february and potentially still be able to do a little bit of both things uh between now and next summer.
2: it definitely seemed like this particularly the morris and the portis signings were designed to be used as assets in the future considering they're acquiring randall as if he is the four of the future and they've been pretty steadfast about robinson being that five of the future there so morris's deal is i think going to be very movable in this trade market and portis is a team option next year so it's essentially the same thing and so it kind of just gives them a few different cracks at having a guy showcase himself and even if the positions seem incredibly redundant there is some flexibility in what positions those guys can play so it gives them a few different opportunities to showcase a valuable asset for a playoff team particularly you know I'm trying to I mean who knows what the Lakers will have to offer but there's going to be a lot of teams out there that think that they're just a piece or two away in their depth to be able to compete with Probably the Clippers and the Sixers or Bucks at the top of each conference.
1: Yeah, it, it's interesting how those sorts of deals can or sometimes don't happen. Kent Bazemore was thought of a lot of times as, as as a player who could work for that when he was on the Hawks. Ended up getting swapped for Evan Turner, and that wasn't the same kind of trade because the Hawks basically took on a similar contract. Couple things on on what Tim said that I think are interesting. I get the idea of wanting an ecosystem, but part of the reason the guys wanted to go there is because the Dicks offered them, it seems like more money than was out there in the market. That's a pretty easy way to bring guys in is to, is to overpay them. Sacramento has, has done this to an extent over the last couple of years. But the other part is in the interim. And I agree with Tim and Jared that the team could look very different in February, March, April, and they should hope that it does, but this is a lot of mouths to feed. And, Injuries can rectify some of that, but I'm imagining that the guys who want to be there feel that way now. But once you have to split up 48 minutes at all five positions, and some of these guys are getting 10 minutes a game, 15 minutes a game, and they think they're starters, they're going to start complaining. They're going to hope they're going to try to make their way out, and they're going to be having the uh, the smallest amount of time to raise their stakes to either get a new contract or to be acquired in trade. So I could imagine there being some souring here tying in, and that doesn't necessarily have to be the signings though it's there too, but Nokina, Dennis Smith, they traded for Dennis Smith. He was an important part of the Porzingis trade last year, and it sounds like if they're going to start Alfred Payton that he could be marginalized.
2: Well, Tim and I would have no idea what you're talking about when it comes to too many mouths to feed. We've never seen that happen with the team before, particularly the one with Marcus Morris on it. So... We'll see if that comes up. But, um, I mean, do you think that Peyton would get that starting role? Because that that changes a lot of things. Because it doesn't sound like Dennis Smith is viewed at as a significant prospect for the future, but rather more of an experiment that they're hoping works out.
0: I think at this point it's hard to assume anything there really. Other than that, I think I would expect Knox... I expect Kevin Knox, R.J. Barrett, and Mitchell Robinson to all get chances in significant minutes, and I, I would assume that Julius Randle will get a shot at pretty significant minutes, too. After that, I think all bets are off as to how things play out um, because, uh, you know, I, I think everybody else on the team, including Dennis Smith, Frank Nielkina, uh, you know, whether you get in all the free agents this summer, I think all of them, it's much more amorphous as to what their roles are going to be, whereas those those four guys Randall because of the money he got the other three guys because of their, their draft pedigree. And in, in Robinson's case, the way he played last year, um, I, I think those four guys can feel pretty secure that they're going to have a significant role and everybody else is going to really be dependent on what happens over the next few weeks and then how they look once the season starts.
2: Because the question is what kind of latitude is Fizz going, going to really be working with here? Is he going to continue to be fully empowered or are we going to see the usual Knicks coaching timeline start to take shape here? Because he may want to either go uh, very veteran heavy so that they can develop the winning culture and then maybe have clashes with the front office or ownership about featuring the younger guys. I mean, I could see a lot of ways where this goes wrong, and it's maybe more so pressure from above to build for the future rather than even just pressure internally from guys not getting their looks.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, I think I think just looking at their situation, I expect Fizz to have – um, I expect Fizz to get a lot of latitude there. Um, it's hard to know for sure, right? We are talking about the Knicks, but they brought this this front office brought him in. Uh, everybody's been on the same page from the beginning. Um, I, I would be surprised if that changed this fast, especially because, frankly, in New York, it's not like anyone there is expecting this to be a banner season, right? I don't think there's going to be pressure from the media if the Knicks win 25 games to fire everyone, because I think everybody's kind of expecting them to be bad after this summer. Um, so I think unless the front office is taken out and there's a you know there's a pursuit of high profile names to fill that job, and then that, maybe that translates down to the coaching staff after that. I, I think that they're all going to probably be back in 2021, and and then I think we'll have a better sense. You know, maybe after that season, if things change. But again, we're we're also talking about the garden, and uh ascribing any sense of certainty about what's going to happen in the future there is always a uh, a risky enterprise.
2: Yeah, generally, what makes the most sense tends to be the opposite of what actually comes to fruition.
1: Yeah, I have a few other ones that I want to talk about, but since we kind of transitioned already. Uh, any moves, draft picks, trades, signings in this division that really stood out to you? There are some big ones, there are some small ones. That I think are worth discussing.
2: I would. I was pretty surprised by the Marcus Soul signing. Uh, you know, and I guess it shouldn't have been too much of a surprise that Toronto is going to, you know, continue to push forward with this team, considering how Messiah is operating. in the, the future. yeah, uh, yeah, that's right. So, you know, I, I guess. I guess at this point they're uh they're going to just kind of maintain status quo or they're going to see how Kyle Lowry looks a few uh months or weeks into the season and then decide whether to blow things up. But I was just surprised how that all went down.
0: I mean, for me the the move that I thought was both most impactful and I wouldn't say super surprising was Al Horford to Philly. I mean, that was a you know, from the moment that Al opted out for that last year of his deal, um wasn't sure exactly where he was going to wind up. There were different places floating around as possibilities. And, you know, like I said before, you go back to what happened to Philadelphia last year, and their biggest weakness was when Embiid was off the court, they were a disaster in that series against Philly. And now having Embiid and Horford together, like, you know, they have easily the best center combination in the league, and the two of them can play, I think, great together. I completely dismiss the, the idea that they're going to have trouble making that work. I mean, yeah, they might not have a ton of shooting, but Horford is such a smart player that, and is a good enough shooter, that I think he could provide enough space and to work with a And I, I just think that partnership is going to be great. So um, I think just looking at the division, at least in the short term, obviously Kevin Durant going to Brooklyn was a big deal. Um, but with his injury, I mean, to me, Horford going to Philly has a chance to be a, a potential title swinging um, transaction if, if things break right for them.
1: Yeah, I agree with you, and also it coming on the heels of the Jimmy Butler thing, which I think is—I was actually writing my—I'm doing a preseason preview series for The Athletic and was writing on Philly's offseason this morning, and what I kind of started with was everybody knew this was going to be an eventful offseason for the Sixers, and I don't think anybody saw all of this coming. The Butler part of it—I you know, think a lot of us expected him to to potentially end up somewhere else, especially with the money it looked like they were committed to giving Tobias Harris, but— Going to Miami, which necessitated a sign and trade, and then getting Josh Richardson in return creates a really fascinating team. And Horford fits into that, I would say, pretty beautifully. Now, you could they could have structured it differently, gone for more of a four-spacer at a different position. But leaning into the defensive identity is a totally worthwhile gamble, in my opinion. And Horford was a fantastic player who I think will— He's not going to solve everything for them, but he will solve some of their biggest problems, which is exceedingly important. And as you guys said, he could end up helping some of their depth issues despite being a member of the starting five. That means they'll have to get more from other like wing-sized guys, but that could be possible.
2: You know, and the important thing is and obviously to Tim's point – Anyone that thinks there's going to be some sort of meshing concern between Horford and Embiid probably has not watched out Horford play in the last five years or really ever. Uh, he's he meshes better than pretty much any player in the game. Uh, and also that while I feel like a lot of the talk about Philadelphia's offense is about them losing potency. I feel like, as far as them their ability to develop chemistry and have guys at a versatility and play off of each other, they have improved in that regard. I mean we've seen the impact that Horford has had on the offense for several years in Boston, where his offensive versatility and the way that he's just able to help adjust, recreate, reset plays, continue plays—it's just been so valuable. Uh, and then Richardson is a guy that I mean, I'm—I maybe I'm higher on Richardson than most people, but I think he still has another level to climb as an offensive player. And the way that they're talking about him, it seems like they feel the same way. But so there's a lot, there's a lot of room for him to grow into his role there as well.
1: We haven't talked a ton on this about the Nets, and I think part of that is because of the Durant injury, that we just have to think about it in a different way for the next six months, probably the next year, if we're being honest. Because even if Durant comes back, he's not going to be the same guy this season. And they're super intriguing for 2020, 2021, and beyond. Durant is an unbelievable talent. I hope that he comes back at full strength. Kyrie is amazing. I mean, I, w- I saw some of his finals performances that were just just incredible, some of the m- more remarkable things I've seen in person. And those two guys together are going to be fascinating. How, how, how Durant reacts to going from the Warriors system to playing with Kyrie is going to be fascinating, how they build around that, also with Dinwiddie and LaVert and everything else. The other part of it that I just, I remember at the moment it happened, being dumbfounded with, and his, and that really hasn't all the way settled, is both Durant and Kyrie in their own ways, though Sean Marks creatively handled it, taking pay cuts to fit in DeAndre Jordan and to give DeAndre Jordan as much money as he got. Like, it was like, oh man, look at that. They got DeAndre Jordan for like the room mid-level or something. Nope. He got more money and it's, it you know, done through some unlikely bonuses and some other little trickeration and then the sign and trade actually worked to their advantage. But... That was fascinating for me, especially because DeAndre Jordan plays the same position as Jared Allen, who I firmly believe is already better than DeAndre Jordan.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, that's the price that you pay to get superstars, right? Um, If they want to play with DeAndre Jordan, you go pay DeAndre Jordan, especially if they're going to take money off their own table. Though, again, like you said, they didn't really take that much money off their own table in the end. The way it's going to shake out, but... Um, but yeah, no, it, it will be very interesting to see how that whole team looks because, you know, ironically, uh, the Nets this year are going to be a less talented version of what the Celtics were last year, uh, which is Kyrie trying to lead a young team, um, with a lot of emerging players who want to have bigger roles, guys like Karis Levert, who's, you know, just signed a contract extension. Same with Dinwiddie, as you mentioned, um, remember me, Kyrie's pretty pretty tight with Jason Tatum. You know, it's not like he didn't have any friends on the team last year, uh, even though he's friends with, with Dinwiddie and knows some of these other guys. J- you mentioned DeAndre Jordan. Jared Allen is a guy, like you said, who really started coming to his own last year. Now he might not start. Either way, he's not going to play as many minutes as he's like. Um, you know, they've got Durant sitting there on the bench, not playing. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm very curious to see what they look like because they have a lot of talent. They could be a pretty good team this year even without Durant. And it also could go kind of funky if it doesn't um you know if those guys are not uh if those guys are not all on the same page. So it's gonna be really interesting to see what that team looks like and you know how they set themselves up for presumably when Duran is back uh come this time next year.
1: I've got two other ones that I think are are notable and one's big, one's small. Both involve the Celtics. First one is Kind of, uh, we could speak to it as as a combination of moves. You know, getting Kemba once Kyrie was gone. I think that works out really well for them. But since, as Tim said, it's such a like for like, I actually find it a little bit less interesting. It's like, hey, good good move by you. Good job to do it. Take advantage of Charlotte going low ball in the offer, so it made it more palatable to go for what other teams could offer. But also the decision that when they needed a center and they didn't have a ton of flexibility because of Kemba and everything else. To go with Ennis Kanter, I think is really is really fascinating. Kanter did look better defensively as a member of the Trailblazers. Part of that was Terry Stotts' system is very well suited for his specific limitations. But I'm fascinated to see what this Celtics team looks like with presumably those two guys
0: starting. I my guess in the end is that Kanter does not start. Um, I'll be I'll, we'll see how that shakes out. But my my assumption is he's going to end up coming off the bench and anchoring their second unit, which I think actually is going to be a perfect role for him. And, you know, you mentioned that Cantor looked better in the playoffs. I think that in today's NBA, where we kind of, where we have all this data and we look at things, you know, we have the ability to kind of look at things from a big picture standpoint and know what works and what doesn't, we're very quick to write off guys that don't necessarily fit right within the uh, the neat paradigm of what guys need to do to win in the final two rounds of the playoffs. Right. Um, But Enes Kanter is a very good player who, with the certain physical skills that he has, in particular, you know, being able to offensive rebound as well as just about anybody in the league. Um, You know, he can produce 12 and eight on it in 20 minutes a night. Um, Not too dissimilar from a guy like Jonas Tunis, Right. Like just he's just a very solid player that can fit, soak up a lot of minutes and give you solid production. Um, I think getting him at the number they got him at was pretty good. Uh, it's it's obviously not a perfect fit, which is why I'm guessing he probably won't start, just because if they are going to start Kemba, Jalen Brown, uh, Jason Tatum, and Gordon Hayward, you probably need somebody who doesn't need the ball in that spot next to them, um, like Kanter does. Uh, but I do think having him as your backup center is about as good as you can do in the league. That's why, to me, one of the real questions for this season is, is can the Celtics get a impact center at some point, this year, um, because if I if they can, I think they've got a shot. Even though I would still pick them not to to get out of the East, uh, but I do think they have to do something between now and the deadline uh, at that spot to get somebody ahead of Canner um, if they want a real shot of knocking off either Milwaukee or um, or Philly and making it to the NBA
2: Finals. Hey, maybe they're one of those candidates for the Bobby Portis contract. Who knows? But I, I expect Canner to start in the regular season for a few reasons. I think the first is that a lot of the people that I've talked to in the coaching staff have emphasized that they're focusing a lot more on running pick and roll and they're much more open to rim running than they have been with previous schemes, mostly just because they haven't really had optimal personnel for rim running in the past. And so that's been a focus of their training camp so far. It seems like they're doing that with the expectation that Kander is going to be playing at least 20 minutes a game, which means he's most likely going to start and They've always, for the most part, started a big, uh, whether it was Aaron Baines or whomever. I think a lot of that was mostly to appease Al Horford starting at the four to a degree. And obviously Horford was finishing the games as, as the five. But this team's closing lineup is going to be Walker, Brown, Tatum, Hayward, and probably Marcus Smart. That's their best lineup. They just handed out a training camp today, the schedules, a little like pocket schedules. And it was those five guys on the cover of the schedule. I think Brad Stevens has said it's that we all know that those are their five best players. So they're going to probably be finishing games that way. And in the playoffs, unless they're facing Philly or, you know, another team with a big center, they're probably most of the time going to be starting small anyway. But for the regular season, I would expect it to be canter most of the time. And they'll probably mix it up a lot depending on matchup. But, you know, they're ceiling, well, obviously, they definitely should be making a move for Another good starting, whether it's a swing or an actual big, uh, most of their ceiling has to do with Gordon Hayward. It's mostly just, is Hayward going to get back to being an all-star caliber playmaker? There's a lot of positive momentum and talk right now, but obviously we just have no idea what to expect until we see him out there.
1: What's fascinating about that concept of the lineup is it gets at something that I, I've, I've harped on a little bit about people trying to replicate the Warriors. And obviously, by what we're talking about, I think we all agree that the Celtics in that iteration are not at the same level, is teams can play small, and I'd be, I'm fascinated to see how that group does, but it's a lot harder to do if you don't have that same level of rim protection that somebody like Draymond Green can bring. And so Draymond is shorter in stature, but his positioning, his length, his strength, all those things, make him a more capable player, and a lot of the teams that have tried to make that happen with different personnel have, have largely failed, because there are ways to exploit it, one of them being a big center, but other ones, is just like, if you can get past that first line of defense, then there isn't as much intimidation, there isn't as much structure to to make life harder on you, and that will be an interesting gamble with somebody like Kemba, who isn't a great defender, and it'll be, I mean, this is going to be a big definitional year for Brad Stevens. I mean, he, he's done a really good job. I think he's one of the better coaches in the league and maybe one of the absolute best, but he's going to have another challenge in front of him this year. And I'm excited to see how he faces it.
0: I think yeah. Stevens is going to be fine with this team because it's going to be a lot easier group for him to manage than last year. I think, um, you know, to put it bluntly, you know, they just have a much better vibe around the group. Now that doesn't, Uh, that doesn't always translate into wins and not having Horford is a real loss, especially for a guy who prides himself in the defensive end. Like Brad does, it's going to be hard to, uh, to fill that spot. Right. But I do think that the Celtics are going to come into this season, um, you know, willing to listen. And I think their young guys feel emboldened by the way they struggled last year, um, you know, Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum both seem particularly motivated to uh, take steps forward from where they were last year. Uh, Kemba is obviously excited to be in a situation where he has a chance to win in a way he hasn't before. Um, you know, like like Jared alluded to. Uh, you know, every word for months has been that Gordon Hayward looks really good. He said all the right things. I think he feels a lot more confident now than he did a year ago. Um, he was in Boston working out all summer. He didn't go home. Um, you know, he stayed here and, and kind of worked and, and got his body in the, the place it wanted it to be. He was really excited to have a whole off season to just sit and work on his game in a way he obviously couldn't the prior year because of the surgeries um, that he had. So uh, I think from that standpoint, I, I think Stevens is going to be in pretty good shape. Um, but it, it is a team that still does have a lot of question marks. Can those young guys take steps forward? Can Gordon Hayward get back somewhere to where close to where he was before? What will Kemba Walker look like on a team with this many offensive options around him? Can Robert Williams or or somebody step up to be an impact player in some form at center? Can they go get a center? Um, can any can any of these young rookies uh, step up? I think Grant Williams has a chance to play a decent amount of minutes. I think you could see Grant Williams closing games at the five in those smaller lineups. I think while well, I agree with Jared that those five guys are their best players, it's pretty hard to see, to your point, Danny, how they could finish games against most teams with either Gordon Hayward or Jason Tatum playing center. I just think they would get obliterated on the boards. Um, but Grant Williams is built like a brick wall and, you know, I think could hold up against some bigger guys inside if you do want to try to go small. So, you know, maybe they try to go that way if they don't get another big. So it's, re- it's going to be a really fun team to watch because there are a lot of things that Brad has at his disposal to, um, to experiment with and monkey with in terms of different lineups he wants to try and you could probably throw out there 12 13 different combinations without much trouble um, and and still have you know four or five pretty good players on the court so uh, I'm curious to see what the Celtics look like and I think it's going to be I think it's gonna be, um, it's gonna be a very interesting year here to see how this starts to develop and, and what direction the Celtics know they can go in after seeing uh,
2: how these guys look the The Grant concept is a really fascinating one because he's a great bridge to their password and that stylistically he's very similar to Al Horford. He doesn't have obviously the size or most of the skills that Horford has, but, uh, or like as far as athleticism, it doesn't shoot quite as well, but he fills a very similar role in his play style is very similar. So it allows them to go to a lot of the stuff that they've been running the last couple of years, especially with a lot of triple handoff base actions and things of that nature. That'll be a little bit more tricky when they're running with uh, you know non shooting bigs, but that is stuff that they've worked on with canner so it seems like their expectation is that canner is going to be able to integrate into what has been their offensive system pretty well and don't forget there's always a possibility they trade for bradley beal there if if beal does hit the market which is a distinct possibility considering that the extension did not happen right away uh and obviously it's not going to be happening the um they're they're one of the teams that has the asset pool to actually pull it off
1: yeah, that's true. And I could imagine Beal fitting in well with what they're trying to do. The last small move I wanted to talk about is is another Celtics one, but partially because it's in division, both teams, I thought it was worth mentioning. And that's, you know, Boston started the dra- draft night with a bunch of assets, 14 pick from Sacramento, then they had 20 and 22, and and then moving on down the line. And one of the moves that they made was exploiting what was a pretty well-known affinity that Philadelphia had for Matisse Thibel into getting the Sixers to give up the 33rd pick, which became Carson Edwards, to move up from twenty-four to twenty. The Celtics ended up then trading the twenty-fourth pick to Phoenix. But I, I thought that was a, a great example of kind of a couple of different things. One, Danny Ainge, you know, taking advantage of a piece of information that he had, but also a little bit of the, you know, new new parts of the the, the greenness of Elton Brand because he was, wasn't able to hold the cards close enough to the chest, and everybody knew who he wanted, and so that allowed the Celtics to take advantage and get an actual resource for it.
0: Yeah, but you know what? I really like that move for Philly. Um, I think Matisse Thibel is going to be a great fit with the Sixers. He is maybe the most NBA-ready player in the draft. I think he's going to get minutes right away on the wing. If anybody, I don't know how much anybody listening to this podcast watched Washington last year, but in the couple games that I saw him play, he, this guy is a lockdown defensive player. And I think his shot, at least from the little bit I've seen, I think his shot is good enough that he can at least be on the court. And look, where Philly's at in terms of their life cycle. If you can have a guy walk in with the 20th pick and immediately contribute, I think that's worth giving up the 33rd pick to move up four spots. Now, if Thibault is not good, and I'm wrong, and he ends up not playing, right, then by all means, I think you can go to town on the Sixers. But I think if if he um, if he's able to play uh, at any kind of rotation level for them this year, for a team that's got hopes of going deep into the playoffs, uh, and again, Thibault's another big long guy. He you can maybe throw him on Giannis potentially for a minute or two in a playoff game. Again, not saying he's going to stop Giannis, but he can at least get in the way. Um, uh, I think if he can if he can become any kind of factor in their rotation, I, I thought that trade was a, a smart move by them to in the back half of the first round go get a guy that that they knew they liked and um and that they that they thought could step right in and play for them.
2: Yeah, and I mean I, a lot of the time we like to look at some of these moves on draft night and feel like a team got fleeced, and then over time you start to figure out that they had a strong inkling that one team was going to take this player or something like that. And that's why they came off earlier than expected. And so I, I tend not to jump on it. It's definitely fun at first to make fun of it. But you know, if, if they identified in their draft process that Bible was definitely their guy, then they paid a, I mean, a price, but not a significant price to make sure they got their guy. If there was nobody else around that area of the draft that they felt they wanted that on that tier, like he is. And when you consider him and Smith as their, you know, uh, young wing guard prospects. I mean, they have they have two very fascinating t- potential defensive presences there that can really make up for a lot of what they lost this, uh, this offseason.
1: Right, and it's a gamble. I mean, Ainge took a gamble taking Romeo Lankford 14th. We'll see if that works out and there are numerous other ones of that in the first round and a big part of what teams do at various levels is betting on your board. I mean, one of the most prominent examples of that involves a trade involving two of the teams in this division. That's the Markel Fultz-Jason Tatum trade, and there are a bunch of other reasons that things went the way they did, but Ainge thought that the difference between those two guys was going to be smaller, and so far, Tatum has been significantly better than Fultz, and Tatum has been a wonderful fit for the Celtics, who, yeah, there was this idea of maybe they're going to need a point guard of the future. We'll see what goes on with everything else. And they were able to lose their point guard – they were able to lose Kyrie and still find Kemba Walker, which you could argue to a point was proof of concept that they could find another point guard if they had to.
2: They were smart enough to look around the league and realize that there were just – there's always going to be enough point guard supply and the the you know competent wing score and versatile defender supply at that position is much lower. So that was, I think, a huge part of the thinking, but – a lot of it was just based on stuff that I've reported in the past. Was that they just they had concerns about Malcolm Foltz when they figured out that he had knee surgery that wasn't reported to them during the pre-draft workout. That certainly played a, a role. It wasn't the entire reason, but it played a role. So there was, yeah, you know, that was a very very unique situation. But it does go to show that there is a legitimate uh, argument about the proposition of uh, of draft pick uh, c- condensing to move up or down in the draft.
1: We we spent a while on the first two bullets, but I think this one'll be faster unless we want to argue it, and I don't think we will. Uh just we'll start with Jared. Best newcomer to his team in this division.
2: Probably Kemba Walker, I would assume is the pretty straightforward answer. Um Actually, no. Actually, Kyrie. So scratch that, edit that out, or don't edit that, whatever. I forgot about Kyrie's in the division. So yeah, Kyrie Irving going to the Brooklyn Nets would probably be the answer that makes the most sense this year. Uh, I'm not going to count Kevin Durant, but he can immediately take them to the next level compared to where Delo had them last year. Also, we have no idea. Things could certainly implode, but I think he has... I think he has a lot to prove this year and is going to be highly motivated to keep the ship together.
0: To reiterate what I said before, I think it's Al Horford for the same reasons I laid out. He fixes their biggest weakness last year, their inability to play without Embiid on the court. He also allows them to rest both he and Embiid for significant stretches of the season because uh, you know they can play them both 60 games in theory and still have you know a star center on the court all the time. Um, and I think he, his versatility at both ends of the court, I think, will really be a big help to Philly uh, as they try to make a deep playoff run. I, you know, Kevin Durant is the answer if you're just looking at pure players. But if we're talking about guys of 2019-20, uh, my choice would be Horford.
1: It's close call. Lots of lots of great players in, that came into new teams on this division. For the t- this upcoming regular season, I'll go with – Kemba, just because I think he might play more than Kyrie. Kyrie always misses some time. Kemba can too, but we don't know that for sure. And Horford, I think they'll be very judicious. But if we're looking at the season as a whole, I'll go with Horford because I think he has the best chance for highest leverage minutes Plenty more to talk about with Tim and Jared, but first message from betonline.ag. This is a great time in sports with both the NFL and college football going on strong. And it's been a lot of fun. The hashtag Sportsnet challenge is also going on strong. That is all of us hosts within the podcast one Sportsnet family predicting NFL games. I'm actually tied for first right now, which is awesome. I mean, I did cover the NFL eons ago, but pretty happy with that. So we'll see where it keeps going. I'm usually tweeting out my picks each week. I will hope to continue doing that as well. And really strong slate in not only both of those sports. I mean, you have Ram Seahawks on Thursday night, Packers-Cowboys, which is going to be a really fun game, and then Georgia-Tennessee, Auburn-Florida, Michigan State-Ohio State going on in college football. But then beyond all that, baseball playoffs going on. I actually have... Braves, Cardinals game one going on in the background as I record this and excited to keep track of, of everything. And the best way to do so is with betonline.ag. Use that podcast one promo code for a 50% sign up bonus, whether it's something that you are going to watch anyway and you want to make more interesting or you think you have insight on where things are going to go. It's great to check it out either way. They have some really awesome in game options as well. So go to betonline.ag, your online sportsbook experts, and you can check out the hashtag Sportsnet Challenge as well. See if I keep dominating. Oh, I realized one other thing that we didn't discuss in the in the other segment. I understand why it took them a while. You know, I basically how they got stuck in a holding pattern because of because of the the Kawhi situation, and the, and Kawhi earned the right to take his time, and it was totally right for the Raptors to take their time because of that. But I did find Masai's reaction to what they did really fascinating. So they, you know, only went beyond one season for with guaranteed money for Patrick McCaw and Stanley Johnson both of whom made around 4 million dollars for both this season and next. And then they, you know, they invested pretty heavily in wings like Pat, like those two and Ronde Hollis Jefferson and there wasn't much on the market, you know, they, they they were a victim of circumstance to a large extent and obviously they won a championship banners fly forever. Masai was at, was the executive of the year in my I did he, did he actually win? I honestly don't remember or care but he deserved it. Um, Oh, did Horst win? Either way. And um, what is, but, but what Toronto decided to do, how they handled his departure was, was really interesting to me.
0: Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't that surprising to me only in that if you look at the way their roster has been set up, they, they, from the moment they made the Kawhi trade, it basically was like, hey, we either were going to have this team through the 2020 season or we are going to have a chance to get Kawhi and go through 2019 and see what happened. Right. So, you know, I-, I think from their standpoint, that didn't really deviate. It was either like, hey, if Kawhi comes back, great, we'll roll forward with this team. And if not, we still have a chance to be pretty good and we can maintain all the flexibility that we have going forward. And then we can decide we're going to do a Pascal Siakam and some of the other moves they have to make. So, um, you know, I, I think. From the beginning, I think Masai probably was betting on this being a one-year experiment. And then as the way the playoffs shook out, they I'm, I know they were emboldened to think they had a better chance of keeping Kawhi in the end. But, you know, as things played out, I wasn't terribly surprised that they went the way they did and bet on a couple athletic younger guys to to maybe give them some minutes in their developmental, uh, developmental core that they could maybe get better and, you know, stay in a holding pattern to wait and see what happens with Gasol and Kyle Lowry and Serge here over the next few months if they decide to make any moves we now and the trade deadline to add some future assets.
2: Yeah, I see the summer as just them setting up for February. That's, you know, they're, they're either going to do a full breakdown or they're going to make a little tweak, but they're uh, I think they're just preparing for a major overhaul around Siakam and Van Fleet.
1: Yeah, and potentially keeping cap space or flexibility open for 2021. Who knows? Maybe there's a reason why they would want to do that. And... An- another point, just briefly, while we're still in this section, Kevin Durant would be the most impactful signing if he hadn't torn his Achilles in the NBA Finals and ruptured whatever the technical term for, for exactly what he did. But it is worth considering what Kevin Durant were going to see, not this year, but two, three years down the line. He is the the centerpiece of the Nets, theoretically becoming a championship contender, if not a championship favorite. And Durant, just a few days ago, turned 31, his game should age better than a vast majority of players because of his shooting and his uncommon size for his position. But I, I got a little wistful at moments during the finals and then afterwards, wondering if what what Durant we're going to see? Like, will we see a top three, a top five, a top ten player in Brooklyn over the next few years?
0: It's really hard to know. Um, you know, I, I I certainly hope so as somebody who's been a fan of Kevin's for a long time as a person, uh, and as a player, um, I would like for him like anybody else in that spot to come back, uh, and be healthy. Um, you know, I think the tricky part about this is that if you say nobody's ever gotten back to like more than 80, 85% of what they were before, right? 80, 85% of Kevin Durant is still probably a top 10 player in the league, right? So... If he's able to just get back on the court for the final three years and be 80 percent of the prior player that he was, uh, he probably is good enough to be one of the 10 best players in the league just based on that alone. Right. So, you know, I, I the thing that I'm more concerned about uh, from his standpoint is the additional injuries that come down the road. Right. Does he have um, a DeMarcus Cousins type situation where he has, you know, a knee injury later or a thigh injury, like other other stuff that kind of a cruise because of the the cat, the Achilles tear, right? And when he comes back from that, other stuff is weakened, and then that gets hurt. So I think if he can stay healthy after this injury, I hope he sits out the year and lets his body heal and gets himself as strong as possible. I think if he can come back from that, you know, like, look at Rudy Gay. I think that's probably, um, in terms of Achilles recovery, so he's probably among the best ones I think we have experience with. Uh, also, not, you know, coincidentally a good friend of Kevin, so I'm sure he'll get good insight into how that's gone. But um, if he can come back at the same level prior to his prior performance that or to his prior performance that Rudy Gay has, I think it's going to work out just fine for him.
2: That was literally the guy I was going to bring up so i can't i can't I can't keep up with bon temps he's too good but uh I think you have to look at it from the perspective that it's a two it's really a two year recovery as we're seeing with most of these significant lower body injuries, especially at his age so the thing is people have to keep in mind is that that first year he's probably going to be almost like a high post player for the most part. And that's the interesting thing is how does he change the way that he is utilized within the offense? Uh, I'd assume he's just not going to be, you know, taking guys from 30 feet out one-on-one nearly as much as he used to. And they're probably going to have him positioned from like the elbow or the high post a lot of the time. So it's going to be, they're going to have to get a little creative with how they use him in the offense to make sure that he's involved without there uh, being stagnation. But he, because of his shooting ability and because of his height, you just assume he's going to be able to be a you know a mid twenties point scorer for the next four years, or at least once he's fully healthy. So I don't really think that's going to tail off, and they're probably still going to be strong contenders for the foreseeable future.
1: What concerns me a little bit more is the defensive end, and Durant can. We saw it a little bit with the Warriors that he can be impactful as more of that weak side, kind of in some ways more traditional power forward. Who can venture off his guy, but probably can't stay with the best wings unless those wings slow down. Like Kawhi doesn't always move super fast, obviously. And I'm interested in that end as well, and that ties in with the idea of what Deshaun Marks want to do at the other forward spot next to Durant. They got Torian Prince as a potential option there, though they they got Torian Prince before they knew Kevin Durant was coming, probably, and. They'll have other options. You know, they got Wilson Chandler, who's now going to miss a bunch of time due to the suspension. And they can, you know, they could try things kind of like what the Raptors did. And it's going to be interesting to see how that works out, especially because when you are putting a lot of your eggs in the center basket with both Jared Allen and DeAndre Jordan, both those guys, I mean, unless they trade Jared Allen, are probably going to be on the team for a while. That you, you, you're not probably going to as much of a switching system, some of the other stuff, unless they want to do that with Jared Allen. So I, I'm interested in what Marks wants to do for the remaining decisions. And I think the forward next to Durant is the most important of those to make, likely in the summer of 2020, maybe 21. We can jump to the last question of the off-season review part of it. It's, it's not in terms of who you think is going to be best or anything like that. It's just the rookie that you are most excited to see.
0: Well, I mean, for me... If looking up and down the division, I mean, I, I think it's going to just be really interesting to see what R.J. Barrett looks like in New York. Uh, obviously, it was not an ideal summer league at times for him. He got better as it went along. I think he learned some things after the first couple games. Um, but he's a guy that wanted to be on the Knicks. His family is from New York. His grandfather was a huge Knicks fan. That was the team he wanted to play on. Um, he wanted to be in, you know, be the guy in the garden, the guy to bring the garden back, all that stuff. And it's going to be very interesting to see um, how that shakes out and what he uh, what he looks like going forward. Um, I, I just I'm really curious to see um, I'm really curious to see how that goes because um, you know there's going to be a lot of pressure on him. He seems like a guy who wants to put a lot of pressure on himself in a good way, uh, and it, it's just going to be a really interesting test to see. Um, how he can handle all of that, because it's not going to be, it's not going to be easy for him. And uh, like we talked about before, this isn't a team with a lot of spacing. This isn't a team uh, that has, you know, a lot of pieces around him to make his life easier. I think it's going to be a lot of, a lot of growing pains, a lot of long nights. And um, you know, I'm, I'm very curious to see how he deals with it because, you know, I think he, he's not a guy that's used to losing, and he's he's a guy that's always had success everywhere he's gone, and that that can be a hard thing to go through as a rookie. So um, I am just really curious to see what what RJ looks like and and kind of how that whole year goes for him.
2: I mean RJ, I've been scouting him since he was like 16, and so I've felt the entire time yeah. that. I'm just waiting for him to get to the NBA because I think that the spacing of the NBA is going to unleash so much of his potential. Uh, it really take advantage of what his skill set is. So I've, I continue to be very high on his potential and I think that his personality is such a great fit for New York. And so that's one of the things that really works out with him going to the Knicks is just that he's someone that I think it really relishes the, the stage and the attention and the pressure that's put on him being there. Uh, but so the that's an obvious one to try to get a less obvious one. Uh, I mean, there's not a lot of rookies even to look at in this, um, in this division outside of Boston, whose roster is 87% rookie, it seems at this point. So I guess Grant Williams, as for the reasons we already talked about, would just be the other interesting one, just because he seems like the only rookie outside of Barrett uh, that actually would be filling probably an important role in the rotation and could be even a uh, solving a problem for his team as opposed to most of the other rookies just kind of just filling into a a little backup role.
1: Part of me is saying, just say Taco Fall, you idiot, because I, (laughs) I am in some ways most excited to see Taco Fall. But yeah, it is RJ, especially because the Knicks need that guy. And so if RJ can be it, then they don't, then it isn't as much urgency to find that player in the next draft. I don't know how good that class is. I'll have a better sense in a few weeks. But that is a huge definitional thing for the Knicks, and I mean it, it, it's going to take time. Whatever, whatever it is, but he could be a very important part of that. I think that there, you know, I've I've been more skeptical of Barrett than I think many in our profession. But I also believe that, like a few other players who went to Duke, he could benefit from improved spacing and ball movement. Uh, you know, eventually, not on this Knicks team, but eventually. And that will be important to watch. He's definitely a talented guy. And and I like with Barrett that he does some uncommon things. He's a very good rebounder for his size, and that could end up being useful on the right team. Again, that might not be this year's Knicks team, but it could be a future Knicks team. And then my number two, as Jared just mentioned, would be Grant Williams. Williams is intriguing, a guy that I had not watched at all before Summer League, and the way he acts on the court in terms of especially communication were very unusual for somebody who just got drafted, and I liked a lot of that. He, his skill set is, is intriguing, and so I, I'm not educated enough on him to make a firm pronouncement, but I'm interested in how it works out. And I also believe that there's a significant chance with him more so than most in this division or in most divisions that we actually get to see it because if he's good enough, I think Stevens will play
0: yeah, and, and I'll just add that I, I do, like I said earlier, think that Thiebel has a chance to be um, a guy that immediately gets minutes in Philly. And, as, you know, as Jared said, this isn't a division with a ton of rookies that have potential for playing time. Uh, so I think that, you know, especially with Philly's potential title aspirations, you know, if Thiebel can come in and give them, you know, minutes right away on the wing, um, you know, not too dissimilar from, like, say, Pat McCaw a couple of years ago in, in Golden State, right? Uh you know, that's got a chance to be, you know, a pretty significant role for somebody to have in his rookie season. If, uh, if things shake out that way.
1: Yeah. Thibol's a really good pick. I, I should have mentioned him as well. And while the Sixers are loaded in their starting lineup, it would take a lot for Thibault to work his way into that. They need quality and depth in the worst way. I mean, we saw that was a huge problem for them, especially before the trade deadline last year. And basically anybody with a pulse, can be a part of their bench rotation, particularly if they're keeping workloads down for their main guys, which I expect them to, because that's the smart thing to do during the regular season.
0: Yeah, no question. And I I think, you know, when you look at Philly's roster, you know, they're, they're kind of in a similar position to last year where, you know, that first five Kyle Quinn is probably going to get some minutes as, as a backup center. Uh, Mike Scott is probably going to be the backup four. Uh, And then, you know, how in that we get some minutes is back a point. But you know, you've got on that wing between Zyre Smith and James Ennis and, and Thibel, um, you know, there's minutes to be had there. And if Theibel can come in and make enough shots to keep people honest. To go with his defense, I think he's got a chance to be a real impact player for them.
1: We can transition into the regular se- or the season preview part of this, and uh, we start with Tim on this one, which is ranking these teams one to five. The criteria I usually use is regular season success. If you want to use something else, just say what it is and rank on that.
0: Uh, just in terms of how they finish. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, Philly uh the next three teams are kind of interesting i will say based on median outcome i will say boston philly brooklyn or boston toronto brooklyn i mean and then uh and then the Knicks. uh but you know i i think between the celtics six, between the celtics raptors and nets they could probably finish in just about any order uh i would say the nets i think most likely are to be towards the bottom of the east and i think the, the celtics are the most likely team to finish third so i'll i'll um i'll say in that order
2: And then since I agree with the order, I guess I'll try to do a playoff variation of that, of which teams have the best playoff potential. Philly, obviously, on their own tier. I think Boston probably right now is on their own tier as far as playoff potential. And then I have Brooklyn and then Toronto and then the Knicks just don't seem like a playoff team.
1: If the Raptors are still together in this form at the end of the year, which I think is a pretty real possibility just because it's hard to figure out exactly what their kind of like sell-off trades or buy trades would be, I could see them just being the wrong matchup for a certain team, which would be fascinating, you know, just because like, they have so many good defenders, they have a lot of intelligent players, and their offense can bog down, but maybe they're kind of in a, in a weird way, they're kind of like Philly Light, where they just... They're just shut you down. I mean, Siaka Mbaka, Marcus all of their wings. At least some of those guys are going to end up being pretty good players. So I, I'm really, I'm really excited about that. But the lack of offensive viability is going to be so much on Kyle Lowry's shoulders. I think that's probably too much for him to bear. And I, I agree with you guys on on the regular season order. Brooklyn is a challenging one. I I keep on thinking that maybe I'm a little bit too low on them. I think Kenny Atkinson's a wonderful coach, but they're a little bit shallow. I mean, the Wilson Chandler injury is going to hurt – they're not injury, suspension is going to hurt them too – and Kyrie's going to miss time, you know. All those, all those sorts of the, the little knick-knack type stuff that always happens that will hit them in some ways harder because, other than at center, I think they're a little and and maybe at, at certain backup guard spots they're a little bit shallow. So we'll, we'll see with that. And we can go to Jared for the next question, which is maybe even just as hard as the last one we talked about the Marassa from two to four because it ties in. How many teams in this division make the playoffs?
2: Four. Toronto. I feel like Toronto's baseline is fairly high, so. And Brooklyn, I'm pretty confident in them making it, so it's got to be four.
0: Yeah, the, the Nets are the one team that I could see things going sideways enough where they don't make the playoffs. I think you look at, you know, I know when you guys go through the team previews, Danny, on the dunk time pod, I know you talk a lot about what expected wins were last year, and the Nets were four or five games over what they really should have been. So it wouldn't shock me, especially if Kyrie misses time, which he probably will miss some time. Uh, with something during the year that they do kind of slide back a little bit. Um, but I also think the bottom of the East is soft enough that even if they do slide back a little bit, they'll probably stay in. So I would say it's three or four, but I think the, the, the far most likely outcome, I think, is that
2: it's four. I, I like Brooklyn in the fact that because of Spence and Karras, they're in a pretty good position to maintain their offensive potency when Kyrie is out. So I feel like they're one of those teams that can handle their big star sitting out games here. They are pretty well and stay afloat.
0: Well, that's true, but Caris has not exactly been a picture of health either, and <laughs> they true. don't they don't have you know they lost a lot of key guys from that team last year. Um, obviously, you do that for a reason, but when you have forty million dollars sitting on the bench and Kevin Durant for starters, right? And you have, you know, Kyrie is a guy who's probably going to miss 15 or 20 games just based off history. So if you say he's going to play 67 games, well, all of a sudden, that's, you know, a lot of money that's not playing in a lot of games. So, you know, like I said, I, I think the the median outcome is that I think they're the six or seven seed in the East and they make it fairly comfortably again. But, um, but I, I just do see a scenario. I'm, I'm more on your side of things where you were talking about them before, Danny. I, I do see scenarios where they wind up, you know, missing the playoffs or, or barely getting in because they do still have some flaws they have to sort out because, again, they have one of the best players in the league who's on the roster who's not going to play this year.
1: Right, and that gets into the challenge that I do, I'm dealing with here because I like to think of it as kind of an odds game. And unambiguously, this division has four playoff-caliber teams. They have four of the top six or seven, just really good squads. And a lot of them are have enough depth and everything else. But where you get into the numbers game is if one of them takes a step back, largely in this division, it's going to be due to injury rather than age, it's not like the Knicks are going to come up and fill that spot. It's going to be teams from other divisions, whether that's the Bulls maybe or however we're seeing, the Magic and the Pistons and all that kind of stuff. So there isn't really another team. So I'm actually going to go with three on the logic that one of the three non-Philly teams could just get saddled. If one of those three teams is somebody's going to get unlucky and there's a decent odds that it's an Atlantic team because there are three of them. So I'm going to go that way, but there are four playoff caliber teams here. I think that the Raptors are going to be a solid regular season team. It could be an interesting playoff team as presently constructed. And then that's the Nets, same thing. You know, I, I think they're going to really miss Damari Carroll. They're going to really miss Jared Dudley, but they do have, you know, they got Garrett Temple, who I think could be an important part of this team. Torian Prince will be compelling. And Marks has done a good job as a general manager. Kurucs could be an important part. Atkinson is one of my favorite young coaches in the league. So I, I think it's going to work out there. But if I had to guess just, just on numbers, I'm going to say it's going to be three.
2: I am excited to see contract here Torian Prince. That's for sure. It's going to be a lot of lot of elbow threes this year.
1: Yeah, a, lot, a lot of elbow threes. And we'll see if he can actually play some defense. Because Tory I don't know whether it's the hair or whatever. But he didn't play defense at Baylor, and he didn't particularly play defense on the Hawks, and that is going to be a, just a, an essential part of his value in the restricted free agent market because there are, there isn't that much cap space. I just read about this for the Athletic, and there will be teams that are interested if he's good enough, but there will not be teams that are interested if he's not good enough.
0: There is a reason the Hawks traded him.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and the Hawks traded him when they could have used a player like him just in the mix. They, they they could use anybody they can, even though, you know, they'll be better.
2: I thought it was because they wanted Alan Crabb so badly.
1: Oh, yeah. That was another move that we could have talked about, I mean, in terms of the way things worked out. Marks being proactive and clearing the cap space ahead of time with the Crab trade, I think that worked out beautifully for them.
2: I mean, it's, it's at least one team in New York got to make a cap move and actually execute and have it come through. That was nice to see. And,
1: and, it's, and it's nice that it was the better run team. Actually, that, that is one thing I want to talk about, which is I'm so happy as a fan of basketball that Kyrie and KD decided to join forces and do it on the actually properly run basketball team instead of on the more famous and poorly run basketball team because it feels like the gravity would have been that the Knicks would have screwed it up somehow, and it wouldn't have even been that big of a stretch to imagine that. And in Brooklyn, they have a pretty good shot at it, and they already have better structures, Dinwoody and LaVert and Jared Allen being there, so – I'm really excited about that, too.
2: I mean, it's funny how you see LeBron going to a team in spite of management, it almost seems, in many ways, even if Magic was a huge part of the selling point. Uh, but just thinking that he can help the management figure things out and do his recruiting while the management was a huge part of recruiting those guys in with Brooklyn. And it's it's good to see that. I mean, it's not like it's some sort of uh, market size competition necessarily because Brooklyn is still a pretty great market to be in even if you're not technically on the Knicks. But uh, it's, it's good to have when there's a major free agency rearrangement to at least have a lot of it be based on consistent, persistent, coherent management strategy an execution over you know a long term period actually paying off as opposed to teams just using their status to be able to try to draw people in. And it doesn't seem like that's working very often anymore.
0: Yeah I mean it hasn't been working for a long time. So you know, I mean the Knicks the Knicks are the Knicks are what they are, unfortunately for my many, many friends in New York who have rooted for them for a very long time. But you know, I think I do think at least, you know, setting aside everything else that went on with them. They didn't sign anybody to long-term deals this summer. They do have these young guys. They do in the future have cap space. So, you know, I hope for, I hope for my friends in New York who are still pulling out hope that the Knicks will someday be good in their lifetimes again, that uh, they're at least slowly starting to turn the ship around, even if it did not go this summer the way that they uh, they had hoped it was going to.
1: Last question for this, and we can get to other stuff we want to, is just breakout players... Players that we will be talking... And it doesn't have to be stars. That doesn't happen enough to be a, an entire question on this podcast. But just players that you think we will be talking about differently a year a year from now when hopefully the two of you are again coming on the podcast and we're talking about these same five teams. Uh,
2: I'll start with uh, Josh Richardson. I've already said it a couple times. I think he's about to climb to another level here. And I don't know if he'll break out just because of he's the fifth least famous player in the starting lineup on his team. But he's that guy that... Just especially where he doesn't have a ton of responsibility, besides probably being the one that marks the best uh, you know, perimeter score on the opposing team, I think it just gives him so much room to work to really elevate his game, make a lot of hustle plays, stuff of that nature. And I think because he's going to be competing deep into the postseason this time, it's going to really elevate his profile. And he just he's just the kind of player that championship teams rely on to kind of be that spark that really gives them that non-star kind of you know second burst in the game so i'm, I'm really excited to see what he does with this team
0: i mean i i think just in general I, I think the obvious answer to this is kevin durant because he'll be getting ready to play in theory um so i mean yeah there's a lot of guys that could choose from but you know i like i think jason Tatum could have a big year you know jalen brown could be on a different team you know probably will be here on a Ben Boston on a big contract but you know you can go around the league of, around the division and look at other guys but I, I think Duran is kind of the obvious one that you hear from now well I'll be waiting to see what he looks like when he gets back on the court again
1: I did a podcast with Ben Taylor and I picked Mitchell Robinson as my single biggest that was more the traditional kind of breakout guy I, I just love his physical tools and he should get the opportunity at least defensively in New York the offense there is going to be really weird with all the all the mouths to feed and it's not, you know, he's not going to be the guy who propels them to the playoffs this year or anything like that. But I think he could be a, make a big jump forward. Also, it got lost in the shuffle because of his terrible injury. But in the early stretch of last season, I thought Karis LeVert was the best of the Nets guards, and I thought he was better than D'Angelo and better than Dinwiddie. And I don't know exactly where he fits in this new ecosystem, and it's going to change even more once KD returns, whenever that happens. But I just think he's a really good basketball. I, I, I think he, like he's dynamic with the ball in his hands, and his best role on a really good team might be second unit Dynamo f- starting, starting you know role player. But that's still a really valuable player, and Brooklyn has lofty expectations at some point, so he could be a very important guy there if he can basically supplant DeAndre. And maybe DeAndre is kind of cool with that because he got his money. Jared Allen, I think I, I just really like him as a player. Not the best center against everybody, but his competitiveness, his fit within parts of the modern NBA, I still think his jump shot's going to keep coming around. I remember that going back to the Nike Hoop Summit. I thought that his, the mechanics on his jumper looked good. And I could see him him having a nice year. And then this is, this is an interesting prediction. I've, this is what I haven't said publicly at all. It wouldn't surprise me at all if Frank Ntilikina has a strong section of the season and it's not in New York that he gets traded and by the end of the year we're just saying, oh yeah, he can actually play basketball. It's not running an offense, not being a starting one. But what he did in the FIBA World Cup is at least partially repeatable in the right organization. I'm just
2: just excited to see the Knicks point guard rotation period with Peyton – who is now 25 and hopefully will be healthy this year and actually have the right haircut to allow him to shoot the ball, you know, he's, he's a guy that I think will continue to improve. Uh, and then you know, Trier was just such a dynamo score. It's going to be really interesting to see if he actually becomes a versatile enough player to actually crack this rotation now that there's some depth there at that spot.
0: Yeah, and no, I agree with you that Nilkeen is a guy that could move on. And, 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 yeah, I do think that the two the – I'm very curious to see what the two wings in Boston look like uh, this time next year, Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. Uh, I think this is a very big year for both those guys for, very, for varying reasons. And um, as I said earlier, they both seem very motivated to put last year behind them, and I, I'm really curious to see what they look like. Because if those guys take a big step forward each, all of a sudden we could be looking at the Celtics in a much different light a year from now um, than we are
1: right now. And something to file away is, depending on how this goes, and he might sign an extension the next few weeks, so then it moots this whole line of thinking, but Jalen Brown is from Marietta, Georgia. The team closest to Marietta, Georgia is the only team that has double max space and could be very interested in bringing in a wing to fill out their rotation. So maybe Danny Ainge would match a lucrative offer sheet, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if Atlanta brings it, not only because he's from around there, but also because he could be a very good fit for where the Hawks are going at a position of scarcity.
0: Well, and you just look next summer, the teams that have money are the kinds of teams that should be trying to make bids on young, restricted free agents, right? Same thing with Pascal Siakam in Toronto, uh, with Jalen, with any of these guys, any of these good young players that hit the market next summer, if they have a nice year, um, you know, they're going to have a chance to get a huge number thrown at them uh, because, You know, if you're the Grizzlies or you're the Hawks or you're the Cavs, why would you be spending huge money on a guy who's 28 when all your best players are in their early 20s? Right. So uh, I think that I I think that, you know, if Jalen Jalen Siakam are the first two guys that come to mind, but any of these guys that hit free agency next summer, if they have if they have good years, I, I think the RFA market next summer because of the weakness of the UFA market. Um really could have a chance to have as much interest in it as there's maybe ever been just because of the, the combination of the teams that are gonna have money and, and the available talent and the way it's spread out between the, the various parts of free agency.
2: I would expect Atlanta to throw max offer sheets at Siakam and then Jalen if he has a if he shows improvement this season. So you're you're absolutely right on that, Danny.
1: We've already gone on for almost an hour and a half. Is there anything else that you guys want to discuss?
2: Should we start the central division now? <laughs>
1: This is actually the last one. This is the last the one, of the six.
0: The one thing I, the one thing I will say is we didn't really talk about them at all. Is um, I do agree with your. I, I don't. Remember, I think you both might have hinted at it. Uh, I think Toronto is going to be very good. Uh, I think they're going to be in the top four in the East. I'm very. You know, I think Pascal Siakam is going to be an All Star this year, and I think that. You know, unless they do actively sell off those guys, which I, I'm not sure they're going to. Um, I think the Raptors are going to win a lot of games. People forget that they went—I want to say—seventeen and four last year when Kawhi didn't play, um, or seventeen and five, something like that. Um, they were really good. when He didn't play, and that's because they have a lot of talent. And I know they're not a title contender anymore, but that's a proud group of guys. It's a lot of veteran guys. They're going to want to try to defend as best as they can. And I expect them to be—I expect them to be, um, them to be uh, a pretty good team that's got a chance to win close to fifty games this year in the East. So. Um, so I'm just I, I think the people who are assuming they're going to they're going to blow it up or they're going to you know, struggle to make the playoffs, I, I think it would take a lot for them to be uh, in that kind of shape. I think they're going to have a very good year.
2: Yeah, I only see them blowing it up if it's just some, that they they think they're going to top out as being a, a you know, high 40s winning team and they just don't want to have to commit long term to really good players that are in their mid 30s. But I, I think Siakam improved over the course of last season more than just about anyone in the league. Uh, Which isn't a surprise, considering the award that he won. But I mean, he showed just tremendous growth over the course of the year, not even just coming into the year. So I'm assuming that's going to generally continue to trend. Maybe if it flattens out a little bit, but he's going to. I I my question with him is: Is he going to be like a second team All NBA guy, or is he just going to be an All Star this year? But I I think the ceiling for him is massive.
1: Agreed, and I think the what could end up being where. Masai's decision-making lies is just coming at it from a position of strength and saying, okay, I'll maybe consider trading Marcus or Serge Ibaka, probably not Lowry considering everything, And but you're going to have to pull me over. And considering big men are not exactly the most valuable commodities around the league right now due to supply and demand, maybe another team just doesn't come with that sort of an offer. Maybe that team is Boston, just if they think Marcus can cure what ails them and they Boston just has so many assets either young players or future draft picks that they just can make can can fill that without draining their coffers too much but i could see it just not going going the other way and they just keep it around and then if those players are willing to take the money that toronto offers great and if not then you say thank you so much for all that you did and move on but i am really happy to him that you brought up the raptors cuz they have gotten short drift they're the reigning nba champions they did I mean, they did a lot of things right it 's just that it were, it worked against them. banners fly forever and that was an unbelievable team and i, I agree with you and the other part that you didn 't mention though this i 'm sure you were thinking it is also that I think Nick nurse is a really good coach and he yeah
0: no question he
1: took a, he was able to maximize a favorable situation last year because they just had a lot of really good players, they had smart defenders and this a similar ecosystem has allowed Steve Kerr to look really, really smart and really good. But I think that Nurse has, I think that he has the coaching instincts and the the judgment to lead this team in a in a, a successful direction as they move forward. And I think that will give Ujiri and management, you know, Maple Leaf Sports Entertainment, the confidence that they can go in whatever direction is best for the franchise in terms of tearing it down or building it up and that he will be able to lead them wherever, wherever that is. And that's a really good place to be. And a lot of teams can't have that confidence because they don't have the structures and the people in place.
0: Yeah, I agree completely. And I, I think, I think people should slow the roll a bit on assuming the Raptors are going to trade these guys away, frankly, because uh, I just don't think there's that many obvious trades for them to make. Um, you know, at the end of the day, Marcus is making 26 million or so. Kyle Lowry is making 34 million or so, and Serge Ibaka is making 20 million or so, right? So when you're talking about trying to trade expiring contracts of that size, there's just not a lot of ways to make that salary work, right? So, um, and, and the Raptors obviously are not going to try to take on super long-term money because they clearly have their eyes set on trying to get Giannis Antetokounmpo and some of these other guys in 2021 and for agency. So um so i i i would be frankly surprised if they they trade any of those guys and i think the more likely path is that they are just trying to be as competitive as possible this year and you know go for trying to win 50 games and um you know make the second round of the playoffs and see what happens because uh, i just don't and look i you know Masai is a you know a there's a guy who gets trades done, and and you know if there's value to be had. I'm sure he'll find it. I just don't see. I just don't see them blowing it up for marginal returns, right? Like they gave up Jonas Valanciunas and what two second round picks last year, basically to get Marcus. All I, I don't see them making those kinds of trades uh, this year. I mean, if they can get a decent first, maybe. But I, I just I think it's going to be hard for them to do that because, like I said, I just don't. There's just it's just hard to make the money work. For um, for those kind of guys, you look at you know teams like uh, the Clippers, some of these other teams trying to get enough money to to make a trade like that. It's just difficult to do.
1: Yeah, that's an absolutely great point. And the logistics of a trade like that, especially when you consider that they wouldn't want to take salary beyond a, an extra season makes it exactly because then they're, they're yep. basically not going after the 2019 signings because almost all those guys got more than two years. So exactly that.
0: And that's kind of the sweet spot that puts them in a weird position. That's why I think they're probably just going to try to win as many games as they can because, you know, again, like, right, why not? And, you know, I think there's some chance that Kyle Lowry sticks around there long-term anyway, and they're going to pay the next summer. So, you know, then you go, all right, well, then, you know, we kind of see where we go from there. But, you know, the other thing too is, as you said, given the way last year went for Toronto, they're playing with house money at this point. So this is, uh, you know, it's, they don't have to, immediately pivot to something they can you know kind of let let this play out see how well they do and then and then start to adjust from there
1: okay well i think that's a, a great way to end this thank you guys so much for taking the time
2: thank you fellas
1: yeah great to do it danny thanks again to tim bontemps and jared weiss for taking the time to come on you can read and see tim bontemps on espn you can follow him at T I M B O N T E M P S, and you can read jared weiss at the athletic so happy he has a full-time gig with us such a talented writer and reporter you can also follow him at jared weiss nba j-a-r-e-d w-e-i-s-s n-b-a and i guess you could say that this marks a form of a transition for real jam radio now that i have the division podcast done still have a few weeks until the season starts some guests already lined up some not but we'll see where things take us over these next few weeks and for those who are familiar with the structure of this show I generally don't get into the nitty-gritty of the season itself until a few weeks in, just because this is more of a big-picture podcast. If you want that stuff, you can hear me all the time on Dunked On, and you can read me at The Athletic. But... That's kind of going to be the way I think it goes this year. Have a couple of other topics that I want to hit before everything gets before we really have enough time for insight. So we'll see where it goes. I, I don't make those promises. Just depends on on who wants to come on and what we want to discuss and what happens. But that is generally the way Real GM Radio goes. If you want to support the show, there are so many ways you can do it. Leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player of your choosing. It's great if it's Apple Podcasts. If you want to be super awesome, you can leave review both places. If you listen using something else, you can also spread. the the word, however you see fit, social media, in person, whatever makes you happy. Subscribing and downloading every episode are also super important. Subscriptions, especially for a show like this, comes out on different days, different times, every week, because it's about guest availability. So you can't really predict it. You can't build it into your schedule. You just subscribe, and then it'll be there whenever it's there. And the single most important thing you can do for this show and any other that has them is... Check out our sponsors, BetOnline.ag. Use that podcast one promo code for a fifty percent sign up bonus, which is fantastic. You can also check out the hashtag SportsNet Challenge. Hopefully, I keep doing well. You can also check out my work. I'm not going to be on Dunked On much the next couple weeks because Nate is continuing his team by team previews. Does absolutely excellent work with those. With expert guests on each franchise. And you can listen, though, to the Over Under podcast that we did, and you can also compare my thoughts on some of these teams to the Arturo Gletti ones that I did for Real Jam Radio a while back when the lines came out. Some teams I've changed my opinion on, some the line has changed my opinion, so... You can compare and contrast. I feel a little bit weird about some of the changes that I made, but that's the way it is. I I try to be honest each time. And my writing work at the Athletic really kicking into high gear. I treat October first as really a start date and I have a huge thirty team preview series that is starting either Friday or Monday, depending on when editorial wants to start running with it. And Lots of other stuff, too. I had a piece come out on the league-wide cap space, which was a lot of fun to do. It's an annual tradition for me, going back to the sporting news. Maybe even to Real GM before that. I would have to remember when I started doing that. It's been about five years. And also, something that put a, put a damper on today, uh, the news out of Sports Illustrated... It's a tough business. I feel so much for everybody who lost their job, those that I know and those that I don't, those whose work I'm very familiar with and those that I I'm less familiar with. Or they do excellent work. I've been a and I was an SI subscriber growing up. It was one of the formative pieces of my sports love beyond the actual action and i'm not sure it's what made me want to be a sports writer but it is what made me think that sports writing was something that i could actually do between between si and bill simmons and seeing so many good people losing their jobs across different sports editorial staffs which sometimes get lost in this but i appreciate the ever-loving hell out of my editors at every level and the past present and future so best wishes to all of them it's just it can be a challenging business and it's uh, i don't want to get too deep into it those who remember i talked at length when the espn cuts happened about hoping that we could find a more sustainable equilibrium i think we're getting closer but that's not the way it works for every individual person and hopefully everybody lands on their feet quickly and that's that's my great hope so best wishes to everybody in here in our business and out there of course as well so thank you so much for listening take care and make it a great day